If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and uh, Ramel will get you one. Uh, I'll put him to work. He's back there in the back corner. There's someone on the back table there. So if you don't have one and you want a Bible, you can raise your hand and Ramel will get you one. Um, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we will get there in a moment. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, it stands as, as one of the core truths of the Christian faith. And this day, Easter or Resurrection Sunday, whichever you prefer, is the day that we as a church worldwide, if you can think about that, worldwide it is being celebrated today. The truth that, of, of the resurrection and, and the way that the resurrection brings life to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And those are just, I want to think just about two simple thoughts this morning as we meditate on the resurrection. And they're just very simple. One would be the truthfulness of the resurrection, and the second is the transforming power of the resurrection. Very simple this morning the truth of the resurrection and the transforming power of the resurrection. And as we think about that, I guess I have a few responses in mind that I'm, that I hope that the Spirit will work in us, though He can do whatever He wants. But these are sort of what my aim is. Uh, one would be for those who are Christians that our response would be one of, of worship. That as we look at the wonder of the resurrection and even of the, the entire Christian faith as, as a whole, that we would respond with praise and thanks to God. You know, sometimes it's good just to step back and look at what we believe as the people of God, and say, this is beautiful, and God is good. Thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. And so that's, I think, what Easter is about. For some of us, that may be a little more difficult. You may be in a season. We go through highs and lows in our Christian life. You may be in a season of skepticism or in, of disenchantment with the faith or just lack of joy in what you're walking through. And maybe you just strayed away from what you know is true for a while. And my hope would be that I would that, that, that God's word and the truth of the resurrection would sort of bolster your faith. It would, it would fill you with a, a fresh excitement, a fresh zeal for the things of God, a fresh wonder at what Jesus has done, that we would pause and we would reflect on these things, and by beholding the truth, we would become more like Christ. Then I trust that there's people here who are not Christians, who have never put their faith in Christ. And my hope for you this morning is that God would Open your eyes to the wonder, not just of what the resurrection is, but of, of the whole of, of Christianity and the truth of God's word. My greatest hope for you is that you would bow your knee to the resurrected King Jesus and that you would know the joy of salvation. That's my greatest hope. But maybe this morning would just be a step on that journey. It might be that you hear the truth of the resurrection and you say, I need to know more about that. And you want to look into it. And maybe you'd go as far as to say, I'd like someone to help me. Would you? Someone in this place, would you help me walk on this journey to know more about who Christ is? So those are sort of my thoughts as we think about the truthfulness of the resurrection and the transforming power of the resurrection. And I want to start our discussion and our thoughts on these by looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And here in this whole chapter, he deals with the idea of the resurrection, of the resurrection of Jesus, and how that breaks into the lives of those who are Christians and, and transforms us. And I just want to read these first 11 verses. Paul writes this. 
Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them, any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So thinking about this passage, I want us to think first about the truthfulness of the resurrection. Like all of the central beliefs of Christianity, the resurrection is something that has to be accepted by faith. It's not purely, it can't be accepted purely by logic or by observable facts or by evidence, but ultimately by faith. What is faith? Faith is believing in something that we can't fully see. And yet, faith is not blind to evidence or to logic or to reason. I shared not long ago an illustration from Miracle on 34th Street. I don't know if you remember that movie where there's a little girl struggling to believe in Santa Claus. And she doubts his existence, but comes to the point that she wants to believe in him. And near the end of the movie, her mother tells her what faith is. And she says, faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. So this little girl, trying to have faith, says over and over again to herself, I believe, I believe it's silly, but I believe. Is that what faith is? Well, that's blind faith, which is not what Christians are called to have. The call of Jesus is not to believe something silly. It's not put to believe something that goes against all reason and evidence. Our faith factors in evidence. It brings in reason. But there also is, is a point at which faith goes beyond what we observe in the world and holds on to the things that we cannot see. So we, we gather truth, but then we have to trust. We have to believe. We have to have faith. That's tough because in a world that's, that's saturated with information, you know, we can know anything. Faith seems a little bit out of style. You know, it can kind of feel dated. Maybe spring has come and you're looking into your closet at your spring clothes or your summer clothes and, and you say, you know what, this is the last season that I'm wearing this. It's looking pretty dated. Uh, the last time that I wore this was a long time ago. You know, there were clothes that we all wore in high school that we would not wear now. And if you're in high school, the clothes that you're wearing now in 10 or 20 years, you'll say, I can't believe I wore that. Um, when I was in junior high, I, I pegged my jeans and I wore silk shirts. And I looked good, but I would look pretty ridiculous right now, wouldn't I, if I wore those things? You know, faith can be rejected in that way. It's seen as something that's, that's dated. It's like something from the past, for those who have not as advanced as far as we have in the present modern age. But if we don't have faith, we don't have Christianity. 
Because the foundation of Christianity is built on truths that can only ultimately be accepted by faith. The core truths of the Bible are like, they're like the support beam right here in the, in the middle of our meeting space. It'd be nice to not have it there, clear some lines of sight. But if we rip that thing out, this whole corner of the building wouldn't be here. The, and the pillars of our faith are, are like that. We have to hold on to them or the whole structure falls apart. Let's think about a few. Take, the, take simply just the, the core belief that God created the world from nothing. That simply by the word of the power, he, by the word of his power, he spoke the world into existence. I can get my mind around that to a certain extent. I can think about evidence. I can look at the world and, and believe Psalm 19.1, which says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above is proclaiming, it's announcing his handiwork, it's telling what he has done. So I stood in my driveway on Wednesday night after I took the trash out, and I looked up in the sky, and the, the moon was nearly full, and just above it you could see a, a prick of light, and it was Jupiter. And Jupiter was right there above the nearly full moon, and I could see it. And it was just a little pinprick of light. But Jupiter is two and a half times more massive, not than the moon, but than all of the other planets in the solar system put together. That's how big Jupiter is. It's just this little dot in the sky. And I can look there, and those heavenly bodies, they're telling me something. They're telling me about who God is. Creation is a masterpiece, and it tells me something about the artist that created it. It tells me who God is. Or maybe think about something not as massive as Jupiter, but think of something like a, a monarch butterfly. Do you know anything about monarch butterflies? Monarch butterflies, every September and October, they travel to central Mexico, which is some, and, and there's some 300 million butterflies that go to the same overwintering areas. And they gather in these clusters on the trees, just massive clusters of butterflies. And they all come together because if they separate, then the frost and the cold will, will kill them. But they gather and they are in these large clusters hanging from these trees. And they'll be there until now, until March. And now they're going to begin a journey back here to the United States and up into southern Canada. So maybe you'll start seeing some monarch butterflies. But the mystery is that how they know where to go. Because it's, it's five generations that are in, involved in this, in this migration. So in other words, the butterflies that fly to Mexico are doing that for the first time. But every time, every year, they all land in the same place. That tells me something about God. It tells me that there's someone intelligent behind all of this. So I can look to the sky and I can look to, to butterflies. I can look to all these other things and I can see in creation, I can see God's fingerprints in this world that he has made. You can look at the magnificent, magnificent, you can look at the minuscule, and you can see there's intelligent design behind it. But at some point, however far my logic gets me, I have to come into the realm of faith and say, God created the world. All the evidence in the world can't prove that to me. Faith must take a step. And not only just some intelligent being, but I believe in a personal God and the God of the Bible. And there's a faith step that has to happen. The same could be said about the person of Jesus Christ, that he was God and man, that he was a human being, but he was God, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, but he was also the Son of God. I can see evidence for that. I can look at the person of Jesus and what's recorded in the Gospels, how even his enemies would walk away saying, no one ever talked like this guy. Or the Jewish people, they were looking for a Messiah. And, and he would do these miracles. 
And they would say, when the Messiah comes, is he going to do more miracles than this guy? So in other words, he did so many miracles, the thought of someone doing more miracles than Jesus was just absurd. His death and his resurrection, they speak to this dual nature that he had, the truth that he was God and man. But still, I can investigate that so far, but at some point, faith steps in, and I have to affirm that Jesus was who he said he was, and who the authors of the New Testament say he was. What we know about Jesus, we know from a book. We know from the Bible. It tells us about his nature and about his life. It tells us about his death and his resurrection. It tells us about his ascension and his promise to return. People are skeptical of the Bible. And even those that are Christians sometimes struggle to accept what's written in the Bible. But I guess we would ask, how else are we supposed to know these things other than some sort of written document? I mean, what other way are they supposed to record the truth? Would they, could they have done a documentary about the resurrection of Jesus? Well, I think if they could have, they would have, but they couldn't. And so what we have is, is the Bible. You know, some say maybe God should just appear to us, and then I would know that he's real. Well, he did, and people wrote it down so that we would know that he is real. People think that the story of Jesus in general and his resurrection in particular is a myth. It's some sort of made-up story. But when you read through the Bible, the authors of Scripture don't, present it as a made-up story. They present it as something that truly, really happened. And the case is strong. So you look here in 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul gives us this rundown of the core truths about Christ. He begins in verse 3 and he says, here's what I know, that Christ died for our sins. He truly died. Number two, he was definitely buried. And number three, he genuinely rose from the dead. How does Paul know that? How does Paul know that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, he tells us because he appeared to Cephas, to Peter. He appeared to Peter and then he appeared to the other disciples, to the twelve. And and then he says that he appeared to, if you notice that there, it says he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, verse 6. So 500 people at one time. We've got probably about less than 100 people in this room. So five times this number of people saw Jesus at one time. Not over the course of time, but in one instance they saw him. And then what does Peter say? Go find him. He says, most of whom are still alive. Some have fallen asleep. Some are dead. But Peter's saying, here's my footnote to my, to my research. It's people. And they exist. And they saw the risen Christ. Go find him. Ask him. It's true. He then says that he appeared to Jesus, that Jesus appeared to his half-brother James. And then he appeared to all the apostles. And then in a vision, he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul lists all of this evidence to say Jesus truly rose from the dead. It actually happened. So Paul gives like bullet points, right? He gives a list. Here's all the reasons we know. And then you read the Gospels, and the Gospels tell us these eyewitness accounts. They give us the, the wonderful stories. And so we go to the Gospel of John, and we hear what Mark read this morning about Mary. And it's, it's told as if it really truly happened because it did so mary comes to the tomb she sees that it's empty and what does she assume jesus rose from the dead no someone stole the body this is a this is a all bears all the marks of a a real life account she runs and tells the disciples peter and john run to find out that it's true very interesting that john who is probably the unnamed disciple makes a note that he outran peter just sort of wants everyone to know he was faster. He gets there first, but he doesn't go in. And Peter gets there and then goes in. They look, they see the grave clothes, some folded, some not folded. Why all the details? Because it really happened. 
If they're making it up, there's no details like that. If you're lying, what kind of details do you provide in the story? Very few. Because someone's going to come back and check on those things. Then right after that, he appears twice to the disciples. Once when Thomas was not there, one of the disciples. So Thomas says, I'm not going to believe. Because I'll believe when I... When I touch his wounds, when I put my finger into the wound in his hands, and when I touch his side. So Jesus shows up a second time. And Jesus says to, to Thomas, look at my wounds. And all the disciples say, told you so. He really did rise from the dead. Why didn't you believe us? And then in John 21, he appears to all the disciples on a beach where they had been fishing. He tells them to try again. He's a stranger on the beach. They don't know who he is, so they cast their nets one more time, and they pull out fish. How many fish? 153. Why is that important? Why did they mark 153? Why would that number stick in their head? 153 sticks in their head because that's the day they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. You remember details like that about significant moments in your life. You can think about something that was shaping to you, and you say, why do I remember that detail? Because it was so massively important in my life. And for these disciples, they saw Jesus. And the number 153, that's there because it truly happened. That's just John. Luke tells about two men who Jesus met on the, on a road, uh, on the road to Emmaus. They didn't recognize him. Then he reveals himself to them. They run back and tell the disciples and Jesus shows up in the upper room. He eats a piece of fish. Why do they include that? To show he's not a ghost. He really was bodily resurrected. And all of these accounts, they bear the marks of eyewitness testimony of men and women who had been despairing the day before, but saw something that confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus, who truly died, truly was buried, had truly risen again. And all of this evidence comes to us, not to mention other things like the boldness of the disciples or the fact that they could never produce a body. If, if someone just produced a body and said, look, here he is, then Christianity falls apart. Or even just the evidence, the, of the fact that millions upon millions of people meet in churches and met in churches today to say, we believe that this is true. All of it's extremely compelling, and that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to convince us that these things are true. Could you explain it away? Sure, you could definitely explain it away. But the case is pretty convincing, isn't it? And yet, as convincing as it is, isn't there a point at which we must say, I believe. I can gather all the evidence. I could present to you evidence all morning long, into the night. But at some point, you have to say, I believe. I believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again. So we see the truthfulness of the resurrection, and we're called to believe it. Of course, believing that the Son of God rose from the dead is a lot different than believing that the sun rose in the sky yesterday. It's not like believing another historical event. It's not like believing in the moon landing. You know, there's some people that don't believe we landed on the moon, that it was a hoax, that it was all done in some sort of sound stage. Some people don't believe that Elvis is dead. They think that he's still alive somewhere, I think in Kalamazoo, somewhere. But... But if you don't believe that we made it to the moon, or if you think that Elvis is still alive, that has no implications on your life or on your soul. But if you don't believe in the resurrection, that has implications on your life. And belief in the resurrection has power in your life. So think with me just about the transformative power of the resurrection. 
There's so many effects of the resurrection for those who really believe. But let me just give you two. They would be spiritual life and eternal life. Spiritual life and eternal life. The resurrection of Jesus not only means that Jesus rose from the dead, it means that he can bring life into my dead life and into my someday dead body. The Bible teaches us right from the beginning about sin, and sin brings death into the world. It brings spiritual death, which is separation from God and the inability to do anything to please Him. There's a thought that we can do enough good deeds to be made right with God. And the problem with that thought is it doesn't understand sin correctly. Because what Paul says about sin is he says, because we have sinned, what are we? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are unable to do anything of spiritual value before God. We have no life and no ability within us. Rather, we are alive to sin. In fact, we're enslaved to sin. So what we need is to die to the power of sin in our lives and to be given new life. Life that allows us to live for God. And faith is what unites us to Jesus. And it unites us to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. Faith believes that the historical events of Jesus' death and resurrection can actually transform me. That his death means that the penalty for my sin was paid when Jesus died. He was crucified. Jesus was crucified, though, not because he had sinned, but to become my substitute, to pay for my sin. Then he rises from the dead, and by faith I'm united to him in his resurrection. And I can have new life. I can now say no to sin, and I can say yes to God. I can live in a way that pleases God. How frustrating it is to think that we can do enough good deeds to please God, when in actuality we are dead in our sins. And so Jesus comes to... to, to allow sin to die in us and to give us new life so that we can walk with and please Him. Apart from the resurrection, we remain dead in our sins. We are unable to live a life that is pleasing to God, unable to know the joy of living for God's glory as we have been made to do. But faith brings new life. And not only are you made alive spiritually, forgiven from our sins and able to say no to sin, but we are given eternal, resurrected Life. Sin brings spiritual death, but sin also brings physical death. Death was not a part of the way that God created the world in the beginning. And so eternal life is a part of the way that God recreates the world through Jesus. So this is what Paul is going to talk about in 1 Corinthians 15, if you read the rest of the chapter. He talks about the bad news in 12 through 19, and he says, Listen, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, we have no hope after this life. Our faith is for this life only, and we are miserable. What's the point in believing these things? But then he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In Adam... Death enters into the world, spiritual death, but also physical death. The truth that we will all one day die. We will breathe our last. And that's because of what Adam has done in his sin. But because of what Christ has done in dying and rising again, we have the hope that when we breathe our last, that one day in a new body we will actually breathe again. We will have resurrected life. 
Many people go through life assuming that eternal life with God is something that everyone will experience. But we can't experience it unless we are united to Christ in his resurrection. United to Christ in his death and resurrection so that one day we can rise and have eternal life. The resurrection of Jesus is my only hope for meaningful and joyful resurrected life after death. That's an important thing to us, isn't it? Jesus has come to defeat the final enemy. The final enemy is death. It's the one thing that looms for us that we think will never get to us. But it will. We've seen people die. And we assume that it won't be us. We drive by a car wreck on the side of the road and we assume that it's not going to be us. But one day it will. We have the hope of eternal life that comes through believing in Christ, believing in His resurrection. The, the, the resurrection is true, but it's also transforming. It changes our lives. It brings spiritual life and it brings eternal resurrected life to us. Now, we've sort of zeroed in on the resurrection. That's what you do on Easter, right? Let's zero in on the resurrection and see its truthfulness and its tr- transforming power. But it's, it's part of this whole masterpiece of the Christian faith and the wonder of what God has done in redemption and in the world. If you think about the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel that Michelangelo painted, it's filled with all these amazing figures. And you can zero in on some of them, and it's beautiful. And you don't even have to zero in on the figure. Everyone knows at least one part of the Sistine Chapel. And it's that part of the fingers, right? The finger of God reaching out to the finger of man. Everyone knows this, this famous picture. And that's just one part of it. But now if you would zoom out from that, there's a whole ceiling that is filled with images. It's an amazing masterpiece. And so as it were, we, we've, we've zoomed in on this particular doctrine of the resurrection. But let's just zoom out for a minute and see this broad masterpiece because there's beauty in these small things like the finger of Adam and the finger of God but to step back and to see the wonder of everything that is there that's breathtaking it's the broad masterpiece of, of Christian the Christian faith that actually causes us to say this this has to be true we look at the world that we live in and there's beauty in this world isn't there breathtaking beauty But there's also soul-crushing tragedy in this world, isn't there? I mean, there is misery and pain, not just in my life, but all around the world. But as we look at all of these things, Christianity, more than anything else, brings into focus everything and helps us see the world rightly. So maybe you look at Jupiter and you look at monarch butterflies and you draw different conclusions. You say they're the result of chance or that God may have set things in order, but he's not actively involved in the world. You hear about the truth of the resurrection, and you think that's just a crutch for weak people. Faith is as outdated as my silk shirts or maybe parachute pants or something like that, you know. But the conviction of the Christian is that the truths we find in Scripture make the most sense of the world. That when we look at the Bible, we look through that lens, it brings everything together. So not just the resurrection, but all of it. Maybe you've gone to the eye doctor, okay? You're not seeing too well. And he puts that chart, and you can see maybe the second line. And slowly he starts flipping those lenses and saying, is this better or is this one better? And he slowly gets closer and closer to that prescription until suddenly he flips those lenses and you can see everything crystal clear. And I think the Christian faith, it doesn't, there are parts that we don't fully understand in our periphery, in our, our, this, this vision over here. But 
But I think Christianity gives us the best vision of the world as it is. C.S. Lewis, a famous author, you probably you maybe know him from the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote one time, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I believe that the sun has risen, not, because, not only because I see the sun risen in the sky, but also because by the sun I see everything else. He saw the truth of the Christian faith, but it was in seeing that truth of Christianity, that his whole life and the whole world was flooded with light and everything else made sense. Just think about some of these things. The truth of of a creator, it fills this world with purpose. It tells us that that feeling that we all have, that we're part of something greater, that it's true. That, That you are not the product of random chance, but you were created on purpose for a purpose, and your purpose is to glorify God now and for all eternity. That, that is why we were created, and Christianity tells us that. The mystery of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one. They tell us of, of the truth of relationship that we're called to have with our Creator, that relationship is bound up within God Himself, but also that, that the Son is sent to be the Savior of the world, that He comes to redeem us from sin. And sin, something no one wants to talk about, sin makes sense of the world, doesn't it? The existence of sin makes us know that the world is broken, that things are not the way that they're supposed to be, that we have rebelled against our Creator. Our God-given sense of justice makes us look at the world and say, these wrongdoings, they have to be paid for. The people that set off bombs in Brussels and killed people, justice needs to come to them. This is evil, it is wrong, and something needs to be done about that. We can say that about the sin in the world. But will we say that about the sin in our own lives? Have we rebelled against God? Do we deserve to be punished? My sin deserves to be punished. We see something like a sacrificial system set up in the Old Testament, but animal sacrifices never cleared people from guilt, and so God in His love sends His Son, who lives a sinless life. He lives a life that deserves no punishment like you and I deserve punishment. And then He takes our sins upon Himself, He dies in our place. And the justice of God is satisfied because Jesus pays the penalty for our sin. Righteousness and justice stand firm in the world. And they have to or the world falls falls apart. But God, in his love, makes a way. Makes a way of salvation for us. And then Jesus, because of his innocence, he is raised from the dead and God vindicates him. God lifts him up and says, he was innocent. And he's exalted as God and as king. And one day he's going to return and he's going to judge this world. He's going to purify it completely from sin. And he's going to reign with those who have come to faith in him. And we will live for all eternity with him in this kingdom of love and of righteousness. When I see that big picture, it just brings everything into focus for me. And it's not just the resurrection. The resurrection is one scene in this unfolding masterpiece of God's work in our world. And the masterpiece is beautiful. But it's beautiful because it's true. The resurrection stands as this sort of pillar in the structure of Christianity. And the the whole structure, the whole building of our faith is firm and it's strong. Why? Because it's true. Because it makes the most sense of this world that we live in. It reminds us of the reality. I think that, that the resurrection itself is such a beautiful thing because it it reminds us of the reality of our sin, that our sin caused the death of Christ. 
that he took our sin upon himself and was crushed because of our sins. But the resurrection also reminds us that we are given new life in Christ. The resurrection reminds us that death is a reality for all, but also it reminds us that death is not the end for those who put their faith in Christ. So the question, I guess, as you look at the truthfulness of Christianity, of the resurrection, is do you believe that? And if we do, it should have this transforming effect in our lives. It's not just one thing that we believe one day of the year, but rather it's part of this whole beautiful picture of what God has done for us in Christ. And when we put that all together, we say, this is what I was made for. This is how I am supposed to live. So do you believe? God's word is true. And faith in God's word will transform you. It will transform our lives. It will transform our lives now and for all eternity. I believe it. I believe that Christ rose from the dead. And I believe that it has transformed my life for the good. And that it ultimately will stand forth as the final truth that has transformed all of creation, that God has redeemed his world by sending his son to live, to die, to rise again, to ascend, and one day he will return. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for this book, and it's not like any other book. It has all of these wonderful, wonderful stories passed down for thousands of years to us, And they have the beautiful ring of truth because they are true. But it's it's beyond our imagination to think that God could become man, to think that God could die, to think that Jesus could come back from the dead, to think that you will make everything right one day. Would we see it? And we believe it. But I pray for eyes of faith for each of us here. Maybe for the first time, maybe just as if for the first time, that we would see these things this morning. Help us to rejoice, Lord. Teach us how to do that. Teach us how to worship you and rejoice in what you have done for us in Christ. I pray it all in his name. Amen.